So Ezekiel 14, I'm going to start at the beginning and I'm going to skip a little section and, and carry on again. So starting at verse 1, Ezekiel 14:1 says, Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. And go to verse 12 to continue. It says, The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land, and they spoil it, so that it be desolate, that no man may pass through because of the beasts, Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, they only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, sword, go through the land and so that I cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only shall be delivered themselves. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off from it man and beast, though Daniel, sorry, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness." And we'll bow for prayer before I continue. Father, again, I thank you for your, your word. Um, Lord, I just ask that you would uh, just guide my thoughts and my words, uh, that I would be a help this morning. I pray that you would prepare the minds of those listening today, that um, they would receive what you would have them to, to receive from this today, um, regardless of what my intentions are, Lord. So we just commit this into your hands. Um, and trust you with what you're going to do this morning, in Christ's name, amen. We begin this chapter, the group of people comes before Ezekiel the prophet, and they want to inquire of God. They're not happy with what's going on around them. And God speaks to Ezekiel and he explains 
the problem with these people. Verse 3, it says, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their heart. They've set up idols in their heart. Now, we all know what an idol is, generally speaking. But when we look around, we don't have a lot of things that we consider to be idols. You go into our world around us, and you won't see people bowing and praying, not typically, to a statue or a carving or, or some object that we would call an idol. That's not the only definition of an idol. Um, when we look up the definition of an idol, one of the definitions is anything on which we set our affections, to which we indulge an excessive and sinful attachment. An idol is anything which usurps the place of God in the hearts of his people. And so when we read this, it says that they've set up their idols in their heart. It doesn't say they have these statues and carvings and objects that they're bowing to and worshiping. It says that they've set them up in their heart. And it's a perfect description of our world today. And we, we live in a world of things, of stuff. And we obsess over our stuff. Um, half a dozen or more of us rode our motorcycles in this morning. And, you know, guys on motorbikes have a tendency to obsess over that thing. <laughs> and it'll be cleaned and polished and scrubbed and maintained immaculately in many cases. And we know every detail of that thing. We know, you know, it's horsepower, it's, you know, the displacement of the engine and, you know, like the tuning specs. And we just know this bike inside out. Often, that makes it an idol. I don't mean to pick on anybody. I've got one myself. <laughs> but it's a thing that we can obsess over. And it's just one of many examples. But we can obsess over these things to a point where it has usurped the place of God in priority in our life. And we may know more about that thing. And we may spend more time thinking about that thing than we do studying God's word and knowing about God and thinking and worshiping God. If that's the case, then that thing is an idol, whether you think of it as an idol or not. You may not pray to that thing and, and ask it to, to grant your wishes. Well, I not say it was a genie. It's an idol. It's something that takes your attention and your time and your, your, your passion that belongs to God. And I'd encourage you to think of your own life and because the bike was only one of the many possibilities. But we all have something in our life that is like that. For me, my bike is a, is a toy and I don't really care. It was under a shelter last year and the shelter collapsed in the snow and the cowling is broken and I don't care. <laughs> it still moves the same way it did before and I put dirt bike mirrors on. I put a dirt bike tire on the back of a 
but like it's just a functional thing to me. It's not a. But put a canoe in front of my face, and I'll pick that thing apart, and I'll criticize your aluminum gunnels and your plastic this and like that thing should be wood and it needs to be canvas covered and you know like be careful of what you do to that don't drag it up on the beach and you you be careful that you don't ding that thing the canoe became an idol to me and i thought about it and i loved it i loved the shape and the structure and the construction and the the feel of it on the water and how i can maneuver that thing to me that became an idol it, I was obsessed over the thing. And I, at one point, decided I would give that up. Forgot, I sold my, my whitewater boat. I, I got rid of all this stuff, let them deteriorate in the back behind the house. And then a few years ago, we got this job as a camp director and there's a stack of canoes out front. And it was like, God said, you put it away as an idol and now you may have it back to enjoy properly. And so I'm careful now to not obsess over this thing and let it control my thoughts and, and life, right? So, so there's my thing, and I have to be careful with that thing. Um, I'm sure every one of you can think of something that matches that description in your life. We need to be careful of the idols that we set up in our hearts. That was just the first thing that he said. And the second thing, it says, it says after it says you've set up idols, there are idols in their heart. It says, and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Now, the stumbling block of their iniquity. You can picture what a stumbling block is. It's something that we trip over. It's, it's a it's a problem it's an obstacle in our life in our path right and in this context it's an obstacle that is between me and God and disrupts my relationship with God and so this stumbling block of iniquity and I I looked up iniquity and then I had to go look up the other word because the main word in the definition of iniquity was something I had never heard of before and I actually didn't write it down I don't know what the word was now, but throughout that <laughs> looking up definitions of words, I come up with this basic definition of iniquity. It's any deviation from rightness of principle or practice or uprightness of mind, any deviation from the exact conformity to truth or the rules prescribed for moral conduct. It's like Perfection in action and thought of right and just and true things. So any iniquity is, it's not just the things that we would call sin. Like, you know, we talk about this course and we talk about the Ten Commandments and we can use the Ten Commandments to convict somebody of their own sin. We've all lied, we've all stolen, we've all committed adultery in our hearts at very least. And none of us have loved and worshipped God with our whole heart, soul, and mind. And none of us have, you know, most of us have used God's name in vain. And we, we, so we, we covet things. We're guilty of like every one of these commandments. And so those are the things we often think of as sin. But 
This goes way beyond that. This goes far beyond just the details of, you know, checking off. I, you know, the, the example that they gave was, you know, Jesus goes to this guy and, you know, keep the law, keep the commandments, and he lists some, and he says, I've kept those. Well, sure you have, but anyway. But there's more, so much more to it than just a checklist of stuff. Like, I, I haven't lied today, I've done good. I haven't stolen anything today, so I can check that one. I haven't been looking at anything I shouldn't be looking at, and I can check that one off. And Well, I read my Bible this morning, I prayed, and you know, we stopped and prayed before the meal today, so I can check off the love the Lord and God. And it's a checklist to people, right? This goes beyond the checklist of the do's and don'ts of religion. It's any deviation from pureness and perfection of God. And there's not a single one of us, no matter what our checklist says, there's not a single one of us that hasn't deviated from that. And so these things, and this is just one verse, but this is the problem that God sets before Ezekiel of these people that are standing before him, inquiring of him, wanting to know God's word from him. He says, how can I give my word to these people? They don't love me. They don't care about me. They're not living and serving me. They've got all these problems between them and me, and they only want me when it suits them and when it serves their purpose. And when when they have a problem that they think I can fix, that's when they want me. Isn't that us? (laughs) We really don't want God to interfere with our lives and get in the way of the things that we want to do, and, but we do want him to interfere when things aren't going our way. That's a problem. And so, we need to dig a little deeper at this. And so, we see that God in this, he describes, we got to verse 12, in 12 and 13, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. God is going to interfere and cause problems in the lives of his people. And we sometimes wonder why nothing seems to go right. Jen kind of reacted to my statement the other day. It's like, I hate my life. (laughs) Because everything I touched either broke or I needed to break to get it to, (laughs) to do what I wanted it to do. Like, nothing would go right. And it doesn't seem to matter. Like, whatever I touch, something's wrong with it. You get angry and frustrated with this stuff. Like, what's God trying to do? Like, why does this exist in your life? And this is the question we need to ask. Instead of just getting mad, God, what are you, why is this here? What are you trying to teach me? What, what do I need to deal with in my life that this trouble is here? Um, one of my, it wasn't, he never worked for me. A guy that, was a hang around at the garage. Um, he was always there. 
when I'm working on stuff and you know, if you work on machinery, you, you know that nothing ever goes smoothly, like nothing. <laughs> um, and so every five minute job is one broken bolt from being a three day job, right? Like this is, this is just how things go. And so his favorite saying, instead of it's always something, he said it's never nothing. <laughs> it's never nothing. There's always gonna be something wrong no matter what we're doing. I was loading a truck onto my trailer the other day and I've, I've known this trailer was on its last legs for a while, but had the winch pulling the truck up and uh, Dave, Dave got me this job. Where's Dave? <laughs> there was no key for that truck. The wheels were turned and the flat. <laughs> Anyway, so I broke the steering lock on the steering wheel so I could try to crank the wheels straight to load on the trailer. And as I'm slowly loading the dog, like that was fun enough, but I'm loading on the trailer and I got halfway up and it didn't sound right. I look back at my winch and the little post that my winch is attached to is doing one of these. It's like peeling the steel off the trailer. I'm like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> so anyway, I... I got it. It's on the truck, and you texted me that was. Fun. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it wasn't fun. I didn't swear <laughs> the whole time. I was like, "What in the world?" Like, man, this is hard. The trailer is also broken beyond that. The spring shackles are breaking off. I like, noticed that after I dropped off the truck at the scrap yard. I'm like, hmm, guess that's the last trip for this trailer. <laughs> So anyway, it's never nothing. There's always something wrong, right? And it's like, well, this statement in verse 13 that God is going to cause some kind of calamity in your life to get your attention to fix the stuff in your life that's wrong. We need to listen when it's just the winch breaking off the trailer or when it's just... You know, the pull card on the chainsaw rips off in your hand. Or, or, you know, like, I don't know, when the wooden spoon breaks over the kid's... I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Something goes wrong. And... That's life. But God's trying to work in our life to get our attention, to fix the stuff, that iniquity, that's a stumbling block between you and him. So like, okay, not everything's going to go perfect. <laughs> That's not the promise. But the promise is that God's going to work to get your attention on things. You know what? We skipped a few verses there, but if we look back at verse 11, it tells us something that's very important for us to realize. Verse 13 gives us the impression that God is just an angry God when he doesn't get his way and we're not doing what he thinks we should be doing, that he's just going to get mad and he's going to make life miserable for us. It's punishment. That's not what it is. We need to go back and read verse 11. It says, well, maybe we need to read before that. Verse 10 says, and they shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. There is a punishment of the iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be even as the punishment of him that seeketh unto him. 
that the house of Israel may go no more astray from me, neither be polluted any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, saith the Lord. God's not just an angry God that's mad at you for not doing what he thinks you should do. God's a loving God that wants a relationship with you. He wants to be your God and he wants you to be his people and to have a a loving relationship of a father and a child. And that's the whole point of the dealing with our sin and our iniquity and our I, the idols that we put in our heart. God wants us to get rid of that stuff so that we can fix that relationship with him. There's a purpose in it. And it's not, we mentioned this, we did the men's breakfast yesterday and that was a part of, part of it is like we, we go off course in our sin and in our life and our ambitions and whatever it is that takes us off course with God and we, we often have a fear when we come to the realization that, you know what, I, I'm wrong. I need to fix this. I'm off course. But it's like we're, we're so apprehensive about admitting this out loud to God, going to God in prayer, asking forgiveness, trying to correct course and get back online. It's like, what are we scared of? Do we not understand that God isn't about punishment. God is about, and I, I pointed to the, the story of the prodigal son. It's the son that leaves home, wastes his inheritance, blows it all on riotous living, it describes. And God sends problems his way. He says there's a famine in the land. He can't get work. He's got no money. So he goes up to some farmer and starts feeding the pigs and he's so desperate for food that he's tempting, like he's looking at the pig slop thinking, I think I could get a snack out of this. And he finally, it says, he came to his senses and realized even his father's servants had enough food to eat. So he says, I'm, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell my father, I am not worthy to be called your son, but I'll, I'll work for you. I'll be a servant But when he gets home, this is his plan. Like he's about to fall on his face before his father and he does it. He says, his father comes out to meet him. He says, father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm, I've sinned against you and against God. His father says, shut up, hug me. Welcome home. I love you. And he sends the servants to kill a calf and make a party. And that's our God. Not the angry, he's not interested in punishment for his children. The discipline is for while we're doing wrong, and when we correct that, it's like, about time, tired of the beatings. God's not like we think he is, often. Anyway, the the whole reason I came to this passage is because we've been looking at Genesis and looking at the flood and Noah and I was reading this this week and I I get to this verse 14 and it says, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job 
were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Noah, Daniel, and Job. So if you've been around, we've been looking at Noah and Noah's life a little bit. And, well, it says the world, like we read that a couple of times now, like the whole world is, is wicked, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It doesn't say a whole lot about Noah specifically in that, other than that Noah found grace and then God gives him some instruction and he does what God tells him to do and build a big boat and prepare for the flood that God said is going to come. But we can see in other places, there's something about Noah that's different. And he's put alongside Job and alongside Daniel. And I'm not going to get into Job and Daniel right now. We'll, we'll look at them some other day. But Noah has an interesting reputation. Um, I don't know where I am in my notes at all, but anyway, we'll go over to Second um, Peter. There it is. Second Peter chapter two. And verse. Second Peter 2 verse 5 says we're in the middle of a whole bunch of other stuff in this as far as context goes so it says it spared not the old world but saved Noah the eighth person a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly Noah is called a preacher of righteousness and so, obviously, there's like the reason Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord is because of who he was, his character. Um, don't go too far from, from Peter here, but over in Hebrews chapter 11, we see another description of Noah. And this is often called the Hall of Faith, it's a chapter that's devoted to primarily to describing the people throughout the Bible who pleased God by their faith, by believing God. Verse 6 says that without God, or sorry, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And then verse 7 says, By faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Was Noah perfect? No. Noah's not a perfect man. He had his own problems. And we see some of them kind of described later on in, in Genesis, but he's not a perfect man, but his faith is what pleased God. And his faith is what gave him favor with God. 
He believed God. It says, by faith, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Remember I described, like, as far as I can gather, it had never rained before <laughs> up until the point of the flood. I, I could be wrong there, but that's what I see kind of described as we go through the, the, the different passages there. And so this kind of matches that. He says he's being warned of God of things not seen as yet. Can you imagine if it had never rained, there'd never been a flood of any sort on the earth, and God tells you, um, I'm going to make water come out of the sky and up from the ground, and we're gonna, I'm going to bury the entire world with water, and you need to build a giant boat big enough to fit such and such animals, and here's the size of it. The details are scarce in Genesis, but we can go by, it describes Noah's age. He's 500 years old at the beginning of this story, and he's 600 years old when the flood came. So we have up to, and maybe a full hundred years, from the time that Noah was told to build the ark, from the time till the flood came. It said he's a preacher of righteousness. And that he believed God, and so he got busy working, he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Can you imagine, if it had never rained before, and you're somewhere inland, and you start building a boat? God said... <laughs> Like, well, that's an awful big boat, Noah. <laughs> well, God said, and I believe him. Talk about an ineffective preacher. The only people he convinced to get on that boat was his family, his wife, three sons, and their wives. And you wonder what they were thinking, even. <laughs> as they were getting on that boat at the end of that hundred years when it was done being made. Can you, can you imagine? If you're somewhere where there, there's no water, but here we are building a boat, and it's supposed to fit all these animals. So we're making all the food, we're getting everything ready. I imagine it would take more than a, a couple of years to do that for a few guys. What a, what a process. What faith he displayed in doing those things when it made no sense to do those things. But he preached. He says he was a preacher of righteousness. So somewhere in between while he's building this boat, he's telling people, uh, God's mad. God's going to judge. And you need to, you need to change course. Um, another thing with Noah, so if I'd, I said to stay in, at Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, another interesting aspect of this, uh, 1 Peter 3 verse 20 says, again, it's, it's a verse that's thrown into a different context, but we can see the part that we're interested in is here. Um, so the first 
phrase of the verse isn't really applicable, but it says, which sometimes were disobedient. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. See that part, though, that God, it says, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah until the ark was, re- was prepared. However long it took Noah to build that thing is how long God was willing to wait before he actually did what he said he was going to do. Before he cast judgment on these workers of iniquity, God waited. If that was a hundred years, can you imagine it's like God today looks at the world and, okay, come with me. Go look at the world. God looks at our world today at the wickedness that's out there. says, I got to destroy this thing. These people have gone too far. But he gives an instruction to the, to the one guy who's still serving God and interested in what God has to say. He says, well, I don't want to destroy the whole thing. I'm going to save you out of it, but you have to do this project. Can you imagine? So, you, if it's me, I'm like, you just get out of the way. Let me, <laughs> let me do this. But God, in his long-suffering gives people a hundred years waiting for Noah to finish the job that he told him to do before he actually does the judgment on the people that he was upset enough with to determine the judgment against in the first place. A hundred years. They deserved it now. (laughs) We deserve it now. But God is patient. And Scripture says he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So God keeps waiting for you and me to do what Noah was doing that whole time, being a preacher of righteousness. We need to keep preaching to the people that need to hear that message of the gospel so that more people can get in the boat, essentially, is what that is. That the rest of that passage in Ezekiel just went through the different destructions and again repeating that, you know, if these three guys, these righteous men who loved and served and honored God were men full of faith, had they been among these people, their faith, their righteousness would only have saved themselves. God would not have spared the rest of the wicked people people around them just because they are there. He's going to make a way for those individuals only. And that's, we need to be aware of that, that that you and me sitting here (laughs) in, in faith, loving and serving and trying to honor God isn't going to stop God's judgment on the whole world. It's like we can only save ourselves through our faith. We need to keep preaching righteousness so that 
others in their own faith can also be saved. Um, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just end with this. Uh, I've mentioned before, last year, um, Jen and I, or I, one of the guys from the fire department had phoned me up and asked if I would be willing to do some work for this older couple. And so he took us there and we met the, the lady and showed us the work in the yard that needed to be done and I agreed to, to do the work. And so we started working and we started picking up their groceries and doing their mail and, and you name it, we do these things for, for this couple. And they just, we finished what we initially set out to do and then she just keeps coming up with more things for us to do. She just wants us to be there and wants to give us work. And, and so we have a good relationship. But within the conversations, it started off with, she was so thankful, her and her husband were so thankful for us being there. She, would, she started off by saying, you guys are a godsend. I was like, oh, well, let me tell you about that. <laughs> it was an opportunity for us to just say, you know what, I actually do believe that God sent us here. And, and then she, was, she says, well, I believe in God. I talk to God. And, you know, in whatever God is in her mind was the God that she speaks to and believes in. And so she, she looked up some information about what a pastor is because she didn't know what a pastor was. And, and so... She says to me after that, she says, well, she's willing to have some conversations, but she says, but don't convert me. I'm like, well, I can't do that anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but we'll, we'll talk, whatever you're willing to talk. And so we've had a few conversations, but she doesn't want to get too involved. And if you start to push a little bit, she just backs off and that, that'll be the end of it for a while. So I haven't had much opportunity to, to discuss God or the gospel or anything in, in quite some time, but we keep going there and doing the work, and we have a, a nice time visiting and whatnot. And, and so, anyway, I was there on, I don't know, one day last week and did a bunch of work, and when I was done, I got the wheelbarrow, and I set it off to the side, and I have a, one broken rake, so I took, tossed that in my truck, and I took the other rake, and I leaned it against the wheelbarrow and just kind of tidied up my stuff, and off I went. Well, she sent me a, an email yesterday afternoon, and I should have brought the computer to, to show you, but um, so she took a couple of pictures out her window, and she says, I looked out my window today, and I see this shining cross. And so she says, it's just the way you placed your tools, and the sun was shining on them. All it was... It's the rim of the wheelbarrow, which at the angle ended up a straight line with the sun gleaming off of it and my rake standing upright against the wheelbarrow. And she looks out and sees a shining cross. And so what that did is it reminded her of another story in her life. She said 40 years ago, she had a friend who was deathly sick in bed and when she was laying in bed and the sun would shine on her door, whatever the door frame was, she would see a shining cross 
with the way the sun, the sun would shine around her through the, the door frame. And that affected her so much that she became a Christian. Now this lady is looking out her window at my tools and sees a cross in her yard and is reminded of that day and she sends me an email to tell me that story. We need to be preachers of righteousness. And Noah had a fruitless ministry. A completely fruitless ministry. The only people he convinced was his own family and they may have been skeptical. They're just like, okay, dad. And get in the boat, kid. <laughs> like, right? Like, we don't know what that was like, but, but we know nobody else went along with it. What a terrible, discouraging ministry if you preach for a hundred years and you don't get a single convert. It's not about the convert. It's be faithful and keep preaching. Let God deal with the hearts of the people. And so I see God dealing with the heart of this lady. Even though she had shut the door as far as our conversation went, something completely unexpected opened that door back up. And now she wants to start that conversation again. That's only God doing it. It's not, but it, it required me first to have said something to her to try to, to point her that direction. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And we need to be preachers of righteousness. And it's not our righteousness. It's not a preaching of you need to straighten up your life. It's a preaching of your life is a mess. You need Christ. He took our penalty on the cross. He paid it. It doesn't matter what we've done, how good or we think we are, or how bad we've been. He's paid it. And it's the faith in that that gets us our salvation. That's where our righteousness comes from. So I'm not preaching, you need to be righteous. I'm preaching, you need to look to Christ's righteousness to be applied to you, because that's the only righteousness that matters. But we need it. So let's pray.